0: Good morning, Coastal. It's amazing to sing the truths of God together, Amen. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've um, Pastor Sean's been taking us through a series called Hymnology, and I loved. I've I've really enjoyed going through the series because he he's exposed the theology behind songs that we've been singing for. For many, many years, and one of the reasons why I'm so passionate um, about this series, and I'm so glad Pastor Sean, is, uh, he had decided to go take us through this, is uh, because at the age of 15, I was uh, God saved me, and not too long after that, I was called into ministry. I was called into ministry from a very young age, and so as soon as I graduated high school, um, I packed my bags and I went where all good Christian people go to Liberty University. And, um, so got to Liberty University, and I declared my major as a worship major, which is strange to declare that that's your major. And, uh, in essence, what it was, was, uh, a music degree with an emphasis in leading congregational music. And, uh, and so I got there and it took me about a semester before, um, I realized some other things that God was doing in my heart. Um, and I didn't like, um, my lack of study of God's Word, and what I found in the program, and thank God it's since then been reformed, but um, a lot of worship leaders uh, in this program loved music a whole lot more than they loved reading God's Word, and and that was an issue, and I knew that was an issue in my own heart, and so in an effort to remedy that, um, I switched my major and uh, decided that what God was doing in my life was calling me to major in biblical studies, which is what I got my undergrad in, and I figured that music could fall somewhere behind that. And so Pastor Sean has, in essence, done the same things. He's taken the, these songs that we sing that we're so used to singing with a melody, and he's decide, he's, he said, let's, let's strip all of this down, and let's look at the biblical foundation for the songs that we sing. And so this hymnology series was birthed. I think A.W. Tozer, he said it best when he said, "I think the last, I believe the last thing God wants is worldly Christians bragging about him. And my desire for you is that you would understand the truths that we sing together as a congregation and we would understand the theology behind the things that we sing because both theology and doctrine um, is very important. And so this morning, my, my desire is to point you toward the person and the work of Jesus Christ and understanding the song that we're going to look at biblically. And the song this morning that's going to be in focus is the great hymn. It's my favorite song. Um, it's called Before the Throne of God above, before the throne of God above. And uh, Scott and the team is going to lead us in it uh, in a few minutes after this. And so um, Charity Lee Smith is the lady who uh, actually wrote the text. She was a daughter of a pastor named Sidney Smith, and she was born in Bloomfield County, Dublin in 1841. And she wrote the text to before the throne of God above around 1863. And when she originally wrote it, the title... Um, to this text was The Advocate, which I think more appropriately labels the song. And so that's going to be the focus of the message this morning, is we're going to focus on this word advocate and what it means biblically. And so if you're taking notes, I want to challenge you to, to, to get a grasp on this word. The word advocate is used five times in the New Testament. Okay? Every time it's used, it's used by the Apostle John. The Apostle John uses it. And it's often it's, it's translated as counselor. Or as helper, or or as, as one who comes to another's aid. And Spurgeon, who was a he was a nineteenth century preacher in uh, London, kind of known as the Prince of Preachers, um, he he took this hymn or this text rather, the Advocate, and he inducted it in this thing that that he put together for his con- congregation. Okay, and so Charles Spurgeon, if you know anything about church history, he. Uh, had this waging war going on with heretical teachings in his ministry, in the latter portion of his ministry, and it was known as the Great Downgrade. And There was kind of five points to this Great Downgrade. Okay, And, and the unique thing about it was it wasn't heresies and, and false doctrine and things that weren't true being taught from outside the church and people attacking the church, but these were heresies and these were false things that were being taught within the church. Okay, they were compromising on important doctrines within the church. And Spurgeon recognized this. And he recognized that he could only stand on God's word, scripture alone. And so he did things to remedy this. One of the things that he did was for his congregation, in order to teach them biblical theology, he crafted a hymn book that the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, used every single week. And the name of the hymn book, I thought this was really funny, and it's very creative. It's called Our Own Hymn Book. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. One of the greatest preachers of all time, and that was the best title he could come up with, I guess. So he crafted this thing called Our Own Hymn Book, and it wasn't even arranged in song titles, okay? It was ra- arranged theologically, and so if one week he was preaching on justification by faith in this hymn book, you could, you could go to the theological portion that had text and songs in there that were about justification by faith, and the the church would stand and they would recite these hymns or recite these texts, and he would use that to to further build their foundation in God's Word. Something a lot of people don't know, and I didn't know until I I started studying for this, is that the music, uh, uh, Charity Smith, the one who wrote the text, To the advocate before the throne of God above, she didn't write the music or the melody to this song. She didn't do that. And so when Spurgeon's congregation would recite this, okay, when he inducted it into his their hymn book, this is, I want to show you exactly how it would go. And so do me a favor, if you're able, stand with me. This is how the Metropolitan Tabernacle church, the church that Charles Spur- Spurgeon was the pastor of, this is how they would recite before the throne of God above. Do this with me. Say, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while In heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ, my Savior, and my God. With Christ, my Savior, and my God. You guys can be seated. This is how Charles Spurgeon's church would have recited this text as he was trying to teach them the gospel. And what I thought was unique was it wasn't until 1997 that music was even put together for this hymn that we now sing. And we're indebted to a lady named Vicki Cook, out of Sovereign Grace Ministries for for crafting a melody and and music that's accessible to us to be able to sing. It's accessible to the masses. And so it wasn't until 1997 that we sang this song at all. Prior to then, it was recited just like you and I did uh, just a moment ago. So today, I want to expose three things to you. The first is I want to focus on our need for an advocate. Okay, why did Charity Leaves write this song? Why do we need an advocate? The second thing that I, I want to look at this morning is, is the qualities that it, this advocate must have in order to be a worthy advocate. And then the last thing I want to do is I want to point you toward the advocate, which we already know is Jesus Christ. And we're going to examine the person and work of Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest joys of my ministry um, that you guys have given me and others have given me is that, is to be able to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's my, my biggest passion, to point people toward the person and work of Jesus Christ. and, and uh, It's my estimation that that is exactly what Charity Lee Smith was striving to do when she penned the song, The Advocate. And so let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, you are worthy, you are holy, you are just, and the only thing that pleases you is your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at our need for an advocate this morning, God, I pray that if there's someone in this room that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that you would make them uncomfortable to the point that they surrender their lives to you, Lord. And God, I pray for the believers in this room this morning, God, that you would, you would continue to grow this passion for your true gospel. And you would continue to grow this love in our hearts for the people you died for. And So thank you for who you are, and thank you for your word and your truth, Lord. And we love you, and it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of 1 John. It's toward the end of the New Testament. 1 John, we're going to look at chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible... Um, you are more than welcome to take that one home with you. 1 John, starting with chapter 2, while you're turning there, I want to give you a brief background, um, as this is going to be our primary text. We're going to move um, in different uh, places throughout the Bible this morning, but this is kind of our foundational text. Um, uh, The book of 1 John, it was written by the Apostle John, uh, not John the Baptist. They're two different people, okay? And... um, he he wrote this when he was very advanced in age, okay? And so if you need a picture of that, just look at Jeff Shrout when he gets back on stage. <laughs> and so looked a lot like Jeff Shrout. And so um, he, he wrote it when he was really advanced in age. He was he was one of the only living eyewitnesses left, okay? And uh and and he he a large portion, if you were to read the Gospel of John and, and if you were to to read first John, a large portion of his ministry. Um, was centered around teaching people that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, okay? Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, is God in the flesh. And and that he was the promised Messiah that was going to bring salvation to every tribe, tongue, and nation, to everyone who would believe. And John was constantly in his ministry, he was constantly correcting and rebuking false teachings about Jesus Christ. There was one in particular uh, movement that he was rebuking it was Gnosticism okay and it, which they taught that that christ wasn 't human okay they they were uh uh purely hung to the spiritual aspect of Jesus Christ, denying that Jesus was a physical person okay and so and so in in the life of john he was he was constantly battling heresies and and false doctrines such as that and um and so he 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 pins the Gospel of John and he pins 1 John and he constantly points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the fact that Jesus is both fully God and he's fully man. So is is John trustworthy? Is John trustworthy? In 1 John chapter 1, we kind of get John's credentials. He says this in, in, in verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See, John isn't just another convert writing. The Apostle John isn't just another convert. He's an eyewitness to the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He's writing about things that he's witnessed with his own eyes. He's writing so that his audience can share in the fellowship with God that he enjoys. And so that that our joy, just as John's joy is complete because he rests in Jesus Christ, he's writing so that our joy may be complete. So we can have confidence that the things that we read were written by an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And so let's look at our main text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 of 1 John. The Apostle John says... My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This reminds me of the lyrics here, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. We need an advocate because we are guilty before God the Father. We're guilty before God the Father. If we had time, I would go over all of 1 John. But I always point people um, who are struggling with their salvation to evaluate themselves in light of 1 John because John spends a lot of time using the words light and darkness. And he says, if you're in the light, if you're in Christ, you will have this attitude and you will do these things. If you're in the darkness and, and, and you're not following after Christ, these are the things that you do. And he spends a lot of time distinguishing. How do you distinguish between those who who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness? And he says in chapter 2, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So does that mean that there's some of us who don't sin? Is John suggesting that, that that there are some people who have the capacity not to sin? Well, look at a few verses before that in in, in verse 10 of chapter one. John says this says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a what? A liar, and his word is not in us. See, John isn't suggesting that there's people out there that don't sin. He's building a case. All right? he's, He's building a case, and his audience would understand that everybody's in the same platform, everybody's condemned. We're all sinners when we stand in the light of God's glorious standards. We're guilty. One thing he does point out in first John, if you were to read it all, is the hostility that unbelievers have toward this truth. Is that unbelievers, you know, people in general don't want to become don't want to hear that they're sinners. But unbelievers who aren't softened to the, the truths of God's word are especially hardened to this truth that they're guilty before a holy God because they don't measure up to God's holy standards. Guilty. We're all guilty. True believers understand what John's saying here and understand that we're helpless apart from from the advocate who we'll look at in a minute, Jesus Christ. Saving us from the penalty of our sin, and it's only this third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that can soften our hearts toward those truths, toward grasping those truths, toward receiving those truths. So I want to help you understand why is it that we sin? Why is it that that Satan can tempt us to despair and remind us of the guilt within? Why is it that Charity Lee Smith wrote this lyric in here? So let's build the case, okay? Why do we sin? Why are we guilty? Why do we need an advocate? It would be beneficial for us to, just for illustrative purposes, to look at Satan as the great accuser. Okay? He look at him as, as as a prosecutor presenting a case before a just judge, okay? And this just judge is God the Father, okay? And so Satan's this prosecutor, and he and he comes before the judge and he presents this case, and he's got a good case, doesn't he? He's right. We're guilty. There doesn't even need to be a trial, does there? Because we're guilty when we're compared and we're measured up to God's glorious standard. And so Satan's constantly building this case against us. And here's why Satan, the, the accuser, the prosecutor, this is why he has a case, okay? And this is very important to understanding um, our, our the fact that we're guilty. Look at Romans 5. This is... This is This teaches, in the theological world, what we call the doctrine of original sin. Okay, And this is what Romans 5, verses 12 through 14 teaches. It says, Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. The Apostle Paul here, he answers the question as to why we sin in this passage. And the, and the answer lies in what I just told you a minute ago, the doctrine of original sin. And it's that since the fall, okay, and if you want to read for yourself the, the record of the fall, you can, you can go to Genesis chapter 3 later and, and kind of read that whole account. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, who were the only people ever, ever, who had the capacity to choose God or to not choose God. The only people, okay? They, had, uh, they were born without sin. They weren't affected by a sin nature. They didn't have original sin. So they had the capacity to choose God or not to choose God. And, what, and the story goes, they didn't choose God, right? They chose to disobey God. And so sin enters the picture here. And when sin enters the picture, death enters the picture. And not just physical death, but a spiritual death. And we're all affected by it because when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And this thing happened called original sin. And because of original sin and because God is holy and he can't have anything to do with sin, we're all destined from the moment we're born to an eternity in hell. And because of this original sin... We, we commit these things called actual sins, which are the sins that you and I commit on a daily basis. We're sinners and we're guilty. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us here, is that we're condemned because of the actions of Adam. And when compared to God and when we stand before God and we stand apart from an advocate and Satan the accuser has this case against us, we all stand guilty. There's a movement in the denomination that I was ordained in <clears throat> that actually teaches now, and it's in their platform, that man is not condemned for original sin. It's completely absurd to me. Other than the fact, and, and it, not only is it absurd, but it's 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 unbiblical, completely unbiblical. It's completely unbiblical to what we just looked at in Romans chapter five. David even had an understanding that we were condemned for original sin in Psalm 51 when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're condemned because of the actions of Adam. See, man is clearly condemned from birth. birth. Before even actual sins are committed, man's condemned because of Adam's choice to disobey God. This is Christmas time and we hear a lot about the the virgin birth, right? We hear a lot about that Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. That he was born of the Virgin Mary. Why is it so significant that Jesus was born of a virgin? It's significant because Jesus had to be born without sin. If he was born like the rest of us, he would have stood condemned like the rest of us. There would be no significance in the birth of Jesus Christ had he not been born apart from sin and without a sin nature. That's the significance of the virgin birth, if anyone ever asks you, is that it separates Jesus from the rest of us. Because Jesus being fully man and fully God couldn't have a sin nature and he couldn't be condemned for the actions of Adam, otherwise he wouldn't be a worthy advocate. The virgin birth is significant to what Jesus Christ came to do. The second part is our guilt is that because of our sin nature, because of original sin, we're incapable of keeping God's law. We're incapable of keeping God's law. We don't even have the capacity to do it. See, because you and I have original sin, the law only makes us more aware of how sinful we are. We can never uphold this, this law that was given to us because of this fallen nature that we have. And I've taught this many times, and you guys may get sick of hearing it from me, but, but because we can't uphold the law, we're incapable of choosing good, and therefore we're incapable of choosing God. Romans 3 teaches that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or you can look up at the screen. Romans 3 teaches us this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's writing, and he says this. He said, there's none that is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, and the text progresses here to kind of show our depravity. It starts with the throat. It says, their throat is an open grave and their, their tongues are used to deceive and the venom of ass, the venom of vipers is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. However, there are some pastors out there that teach that we can choose not to sin or that we can choose God over sin. But the text says what? There's none who what seeks. There's none who seek after God. Paul Washer, he's a great preacher and teacher on the gospel, and, and this is a little lengthy quote, and so stay with me because it's, um, it's really good. He, he, about this passage of Scripture, he says this, and it's a, it's a hard thing to swallow, but he cuts to the core of the condition of man apart from an advocate by saying this. He says, "We live in a world full of self-proclaimed seekers after God, and yet... The scriptures destroy all such boasting with one simple declaration. There is none who seeks for God. Quite often we hear young converts to Christianity who begin their testimony with the words, For years I was seeking after God. But the scriptures again reply, There is none who seeks after God. A man is an utterly fallen creature. Whose nature is depraved and perverse he hates a holy God and opposes his truth because it convicts him of his depravity and rebellion he will not come to God but will do absolutely everything in his power to escape him and forget him God is righteous and man is a lawbreaker therefore he is more inclined to seek he is no more inclined to seek God than a criminal at large is inclined to seek an officer of the law that's our condition apart from Christ softening our hearts, apart from the Holy Spirit softening our hearts. And he goes on to make this illustration that I love when he's talking about our, our condition apart from Christ, is I want you to picture a dead man laying right here on the stage. He's completely dead. He's lifeless. He's been dead. And I tell this dead man, you know, you should, uh, you should get a defibrillator and use it on yourself. It's crazy, right? Or if I told this dead man, hey, you know Mary Immaculate Hospital was right down the road. You should possibly think about getting up and walking over there. I, I should have told him that a few days ago probably before he died, right? Dead men can't help themselves. Dead men can't help themselves. Dead men can't bring themselves back to life. But we remember the story of Lazarus, right? He was dead. Right? We remember the story? And Jesus, the living words of Jesus Christ brought that dead man back to life. Brought him back to life. I don't know about you, but that excites me about the gospel, right? There's a fact when Jesus speaks, life happens. When Jesus speaks, life happens. He needed the words, Lazarus needed the words, the living words of Jesus Christ. So we need an advocate. We can't, we can't do it ourselves. We have to have an advocate to come alongside of us. And So what kind of advocate do we need? I think Charity Lee Smith, the author of this text, is. I think she uh, does a great job at articulating the qualities that an advocate must have in order to be a worthy advocate. We need a high priest and one that's sinless. We need one righteous enough to plead our case before God the Father. We need one who's not tainted by the actions of Adam. Again, remember, that's the significance of the virgin birth. But one is completely holy and completely upholds God the Father's demands. We need one who was sacrificed. Our advocate must be sacrificed on behalf of the ones that he defends. We need one who fulfills God the Father's demands because God is holy and only those who are holy can enter his presence. And we can't do that because we're sinful. And so this advocate must be completely worthy, must be completely holy. This advocate must completely and consistently uphold the righteous law of God in order to be a worthy advocate. And then finally, what Charity Lee Smith argues is that this advocate must be the I am. This advocate must be God in the flesh. Because only God can measure up to God's standards. That's it. Only God can measure up to God's standards. So here we have the worthy advocate, Jesus Christ. And I love the lyrics. She writes, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And she goes on and says, Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. Jesus Christ is our only advocate. See, Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is sinless. Hebrews chapter 4 teaches us this in verses 14 through 16. When the Hebraic author states, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, is yet without sin. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who was sacrificed. Our primary text that we've been building on, First John 2.2, 2 states, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I know I've taught you this word before, but propitiation in this passage, um, uh, you should take note of it if you're writing notes. It's referring to this atoning sacrifice that only the God-man Jesus Christ could pay. Only the God-man Jesus Christ was worthy enough to atone for our sins and to please God the Father. Jesus is the one who fulfills God the Father's demands. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, For our sake... We just sang about it a few moments ago when the team led us in worship through music. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness here referring to the one who upholds God's standards. It's a person in right relationship with God. And it's encouraging to me that God... For those who are found in Jesus Christ, he doesn't look at us and he doesn't see our shortcomings. He doesn't see the sins of Adam. But he looks at his son and he sees righteousness. The person and work of Jesus Christ is credited, as Pastor Sean likes to say, to our bank account. And God the Father looks at us and he sees his son. And the final quality is that Jesus is the I Am. Jesus is the I Am. He's fully God. He's fully man. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle, uh, the Apostle John, he gives us a beautiful word picture of Jesus Christ right um, out of the gate. And I'm sure many of you have heard it before in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the what? Word. The Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Later in John 8, 58, the Apostle John says, and he's quoting Jesus, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God the second person of the Trinity. Only Jesus Christ could redeem the actions of Adam. Only Jesus Christ could redeem original sin. Only Jesus Christ could redeem actual sin. What I love is that passage, it talks about Adam and how Adam's actions are imputed to us, Okay, or transferred to us. Later, the Apostle Paul shifts his tone and he gives his readers hope. And I love this hope because it's the reason we're all gathered in this building today. The latter portion of Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, Paul shifts his tone and he says, But this free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many. When we pictured Satan as this prosecutor, right? As this, as this great accuser who's 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 presenting this case before the just judge, God the Father. Now Jesus Christ steps in as the second Adam. And he steps in as our defense, as our advocate, as our counselor, as our aid. And he pleads our case to God the Father. And God listens. God listens to the case. See, God the Father is a just judge. I've told you this before, but this just judge, because God is just, He couldn't just forgive and forget sin because He's just and because that would violate the character of God. He couldn't just forgive and forget. But God being the just judge, He sent His Son the second person of the Trinity, born of a virgin who lived a sinless, spotless life, completely pleasing to God the Father, and he gave him the death penalty. And as a result, sinners, you, me, as a result, we can be free. There's a new song that plays, of course, I'm not sure if it's new, but there's a song that plays on the radio that has the lyrics, it should have been me, it should have been us, it should have been... They're hanging on the cross, and I'm not certain of where they got their theology from, but it's bad theology because it shouldn't have been us. It should not have been us because none of us were righteous enough, perfect enough to bear the cross that Jesus Christ bore. It should have never been us because it was God's, God the Father's plan to crucify His Son, Jesus Christ, for His glory and for the sins of mankind. And because God's plan didn't end with the death penalty, we serve a resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, who's active and who's living. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, calls you and I to benefit from Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11, it states, Yet it was the will of the Lord, this is Old Testament, mind you, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness. And he shall bear their iniquities. Only Jesus Christ was worthy enough to bear the cross. If you and I died on that cross, it would have amounted to nothing but our death. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, bore the brunt of our punishment and delivered us, not from the presence of sin, but from the penalty of our sin. And I'm grateful for that, and I'm thankful for that. I think Charles Spurgeon, he inducted this song, or this text rather, and to his hymn book to teach people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's exactly what Charity Lee Smith intended for it to do, was to teach the people the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my question to you this morning is, what are you going to do with the gospel? What are you going to do with the gospel? If you're not a believer and you're in this room this morning, In light of the fact that you're helpless apart from Jesus Christ, what are you going to do with the gospel? Jesus has called you to repent and believe these truths. If you're a believer in this room, are you committed enough to the word of God to teach those you love about the gospel, to share the gospel in loving kindness? What are you going to do with the gospel? It's the most important conversation that you'll ever have. Amen? And I'm thankful that we have an advocate that pleads our case before God the Father so that we can one day enjoy a perfect fellowship in heaven together as a church. Amen? So let's close in prayer. Jesus, you are the only one who is worthy and holy and righteous. God, and you are obedient even to the point of death, God. And we're thankful that you died because your death and resurrection brought us life. So, Lord, I pray that uh, God for the person in here that doesn't know you, God, Draw them to yourself. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften their hearts to the truths of your gospel. and we could welcome them into the family of God. Lord, I pray for the believers in this room, Lord, that you would continue to swell up that desire and that love and that passion and that zeal for the gospel. To share it unashamedly wherever they go, Father. And we give you all the glory. And all the honor and the praise. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. As this is our offertory time. If you're a guest with us. We don't want you to feel any pressure at all to give. The service is our gift to you. This is just a, another way that God's church worships him. Through being generous. And um, with that said I'm going to turn it over to Scott.